It usually, it depends on how many cheeseburgers I've had <laughs> leading up to that shift. I thought it was funny after I cleared. I was like, well, I'm brand new, just graduated, and you're going to leave me in charge of whoever, whoever dies next. You're going to leave me in charge of them. This is Ginger Locke, and this is Medic Mindset. It's where I do my best to understand the mental workings of medics. I like to sort through just exactly what makes them tick. The audio is mostly without edit and is detail-heavy. We don't gloss over things. I'm quite content to sit and poke around at stuff until I feel like I've gotten to know the heart of the subject. I invite you to join me by listening to this face-to-face conversation with a medic who is more the strong, silent type than the type to speak as freely as he does in this interview. It's an honor to get a chance to explore around in his brain. He shares an idea that I've never heard before when he describes the three basic types of medics that he's realized exist. If you listen closely, you can hear my pencil start scratching in my notebook as he talks about it. So listen as we jump right in. Do you remember telling your parents you wanted to be a medic? It's kind of hard to talk to people about being a paramedic because it's People don't know what that means. That's true. That's a very true statement. So I'm not the really talkative type. So I was like, I don't really want to explain to my mom what this means. Like, hey, mom, I'm in paramedic school. Oh, congratulations Mm -hmm. was the reaction. And I didn't have a great explanation for my Mm -hmm. mom at the time because I was still learning about it. So Yeah. If you could go back and give advice to yourself... While you were in paramedic school, any advice you would give yourself? So I started school kind of later in life for Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went into paramedic school with the mindset that I'm going to do this right because I don't really have a second option. How old were you when you started? 28. I honestly, I don't know how kids do this coming out of high school. I know. Um, I have no idea because when I was, when I graduated from high school, I did not want to study anything. I didn't care about anyone or anything. And so, man, maybe I'm not the best person to ask what I would do differently. Were you happy during paramedic school? Yeah, I think so. I was, I was really happy. Before I did paramedic school, I was, I was a terrible student. I Mm -hmm. couldn't figure out why school just wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. And it was because I just didn't have the right subject matter. You really continued your learning. So what resources did you go to, to, or what resources do you go to, to continue your learning? A lot of current stuff is available on, uh, is it mcrit.org or mm-hmm. .com? Yeah, it's mcrit.org. It's emcrit.org. I try to follow that, um, that website, and a lot of those are podcasts. Yeah. So you can just listen to it. You don't have to read anything. So the guy that puts that one on his name is Scott Weingart. Mm-hmm. And someone asked him how many downloads he's had of mm-hmm. his podcast. Make a guess. A million? Five million. Okay. That's nuts, right? Yeah. It's free. Yeah, it's free. Free education. Mm-hmm. What else? I look at uh, Dr. Smith's ECG blog. Uh, recess.me mm-hmm. is another good website. Um I think the guy who runs that is a physician that works for London Air. So it's recess, M-E, not E-M? Recess dot M-E. 
Yeah. M-E. Yeah. I wonder what the M-E is for. Med, med education, maybe. Probably. Um, and then I think it's prehospitalmed.org. Hmm. Which is a that might be new for me. It's a it's a pre-hospital retrieval medicine website, which mm-hmm. is air ambulance rescue, all like the current trauma research and emergency airway research, and is available through through those websites. Oh man, there's so much I want to talk to you. You say airway, and I just want to talk to you for an hour about that, and we will. But before we do that, let's say that I handed you a twelve lead, and you're thinking like ACS, or you're thinking your typical chest pain patient. Walk me through your thought process as you look through it. And don't be a student with this. Don't tell me your systematic analysis. I really want to know where does your eye go first? Where does your mind go first when you're looking at a 12 leap? Um, so, so like if it's a patient with chest pain or some sort of equivalent symptom, I'll look for like obvious stuff that's obvious, um, obvious elevation or really bizarre morphology. I think the way we were taught in school is like, look at your rate, look at your rhythm, look at, well, before rhythm, look at the rate, whether it's regular, irregular, look at your axis. There's very few times I even care about axis now. I mean, if, if, you know, the heart rate's between 160, I don't really care what the rate is right. um, for, for chest pain. Uh-huh. So yeah, obvious elevation, obvious bizarre morphology and then if there's nothing obvious then I look for what's subtle Mm -hmm. so I guess for example a lot of reading that I've done so like if you have uh, like a high lateral STEMI so that's your one and your AVL it's not usually going to present with large ST elevation it'll be small because those leads are really low amplitude anyway yep so it's not going to be your one millimeter or whatever they teach you in school. But if you have half a millimeter and then you look at your reciprocal changes in your inferior leads, you have the subtlest reciprocal change mm-hmm. and that patient looks sick. Yeah. Then that's, even though that doesn't meet anyone's criteria, that's probably a heart attack right. that they're having. So You know, maybe 12 leads are like the whole clinical picture. Like just like differential diagnosis like it's the whole story put together yeah so our uh our medical director um he doesn't want us calling STEMI alerts unless we have a strong story with a strong 12 lead right so if you just ran a 12 lead because they had kind of some vague abdominal pain and it's borderline that's just not enough yeah yeah if both are really vague you know i'm probably still gonna go to a center that has a cath lab yeah but we're not gonna go emergent so thinking about stemmies i'm thinking about hard calls if i could send you on a call right now what what's the call that you're dreading so i i guess i'm not really actually okay so what what would really challenge me or what i would be worried about especially in in this current social atmosphere would be like a law enforcement officer that's been shot or another like a firefighter another public service professional that's been shot and then I'm first on scene to take care of that patient that would probably put me in a a much more heightened state what is it about it specifically that puts you in the heightened state which part of it um well, so especially in our service, oftentimes I'll be the only paramedic on the truck. And so just knowing that you're in charge of 
all the decisions. You're in charge of managing that scene, which I don't necessarily think I'd have a problem with. I don't really think dreading is, is the right word. That's what I signed up for. I mean, I, you know, I, I signed up to be a paramedic for those kind of calls, but mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of call that I think about needing to prepare for often. Right. I used to mentally rehearse certain varieties of calls. Yeah. So you work with intermediates or yeah. basics? Do you yes, both. Do you have a preference of one over the other, intermediate or basic? Having an intermediate is nice because you have someone else who can start IVs when you're in like a dry spell of missing repeatedly. The EMTs I work with are really, really good um, at, of course, all their BLS skills and they're good at assessments and they're good at helping you manage the scene. And then they're very good at knowing what we're supposed to do next. So that's one of the qualities that makes for a good partner, anticipating where you're going with stuff? Yeah. Actually, one of the things I hated in school, and I hated on the clinicals, and I I hated in lab, was they're like, you have to tell your partner (laughs) that you want your vital signs. I get it when you're first learning in order to get out of that shell, but uh, in real life, like out of school, you're partner I don't ever want to have to ask my partner to get vital signs no. do it automatically the the biggest problem I would have as a student is I would go in and I'd be assessing my patient and focused on my patient and of course the sicker or the worse off they are the more I'm getting into the assessment and the history taking in the questions and you know I might not ask for a set of vital signs and so it kind of disrupts my flow yep. when my preceptors are like, do you, do you want a blood pressure? Well, right. yeah, of course I want a right. blood pressure. Just, just be normal. Well, let's talk about that. What If you could go back to your paramedic school, what would you tweak? What would you change? What would you emphasize more? What would you delete? So I think the card glasses are a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So with your critical calls emphasizing scene time, or if you could somehow simulate your lab assessment to what would translate to a like a sub 10 minute scene time which is kind of the magic number that most uh, agencies have adopted for you know your critical calls if you're going to call a trauma alert you should be off scene in 10 minutes if you're going to call a STEMI or a stroke you should be off scene in 10 minutes because that's so fast right and that was the hardest part you know the first stroke or the first STEMI I couldn't it seemed like I wasn't doing anything in under 10 minutes. It was like, mm-hmm. here's a 12 lead. You look bad. I think this is a STEMI. You look bad. Okay, let's go. And then we're at the hospital and I'm like, what did I ask them? I don't right. remember any of my questions. But here's the 12 lead doctor and they look bad. So, mm-hmm. But I think 10 minutes is a- enough time, but it takes practice to get a thorough assessment. And mm. that's... Good point. Figuring out what to shave off of your assessment. Yeah, that's what we probably should do more of Mm -hmm. in in school. And I had one preceptor tell me one time, because I was going through like my sample history questions and my OPQRST, and he was like, why are you asking what they ate for lunch? And it was uh, was unrelated to, you know, any kind of 
gastrointestinal complaint. It's like a headache or something. You don't need to ask what they ate and how big their meal was. Knowing what not to ask and what you don't need to ask yeah. is a big thing that separates your average level provider from someone who's more advanced mm-hmm. and who's just better at their job. Are you musical? Uh, Do you play an instrument? I'm learning how to play guitar, but I'm terrible. Yeah, that's a hard one to start with. Why do you start with the guitar? Play the drums. It's the coolest one. <laughs> Do you shine your boots? I used to, and whenever you get hired, you should, mm-hmm. at least until you clear. Look your best with your uniform, shine your boots, press your shirt and your pants. If you wear white, bleach your shirts. But it's incredibly impractical to shine your boots that yeah. you're going to run calls in, because as soon as you step out outside, you're going to scuff them, and they're going to get dirty. Yeah. So uh, I once I cleared, I bought boots that... You couldn't shine. There's a uh, rubber protecting the oh, what kind? The, the what top. Brand, what brand are they? Hikes, H A I X. They're a firefighter boot. Mm-hmm. Are they and, like heavy duty? Yeah, they're like steel toe, and um, mm-hmm. um, I've run over my toe with a stretcher yeah. with a patient on it before. Yeah. I mean, when people are freaking out, mm-hmm. and you have a patient on the stretcher, and you need to go to the truck, you'll tend to push that stretcher a little faster. Mm-hmm. And not really look where everyone's feet are. Yeah. And if I didn't have those boots, I probably would, would have hurt myself. Well, let's get to the nitty gritty of freaking out on calls. Um, how do you stay calm on calls? Yeah, I recently had a call that I was uh, kind of freaking out on. I did dispatch a commander or a captain to come because I, th- I thought I was going to need her. And then I dispatched air ambulance as well because I thought I was going to need that. We're issued a cell phone. Each truck has their own truck cell phone. And so my captain was kind of was calling the phone and trying to talk me through this particular call. And she kind of yelled at me and I was like, why are you? Why are you? And she's like, listen, I'm going to tell you what to do. Step by step. So I must have been freaking out, but I couldn't tell. Interesting. Yeah. And then after the call, I was like, sorry, Captain. I, I was freaking out. Sure. Like, that wasn't something I'd done before. So So you said at the beginning you were freaking out. What does that look like for you? Does that mean not making decisions? Does that mean like any physical manifestations? I'm thinking of paramedic students and normalizing their responses to stress, right? So they're, they're going to see their hands shaking. For me, it's it's nothing outside the normal. You probably are going to sweat more and you may be flushed. Mm-hmm. Your heart rate's going to increase. When I get nervous, I probably talk more. Like I'll, t- I'll talk to my partner like, hey, uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts here? Because uh, we're about to pull up on scene and, you know, I, I don't know what to do. So the freaking out really came from the dispatch info. It was before you even got to the call. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most of the time it's the anticipation that will get me or that you used to. What I'm wanting to get to is how you, how you manage that stress. So, so when I actually got off the truck and I'm looking at the patient and what I'm dealing with, um, when the patient's in front of you, at least for me, it, I kind of snap out of that haze that you're in the driving up to the call the anticipating what you're going to get freaks me out the most i relate to that as well yeah but when the the patient's in front of you a little bit of calmness and a little bit of clarity uh for me at least kind of kind of comes over me 
once you start doing things yeah it releases some of that energy so you had asked a couple times like how does it manifest yeah i i guess the best way i could put it is sometimes i'll have a little bit of hesitation mm-hmm. um not about specific treatments but like hey your assessment's over let's move the patient to the ambulance right let's go to the hospital instead of have I done everything? What else isn't? What else is left? Mm-hmm. Nope. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to the hospital. Let's get off scene. Like that's mostly lately how I've noticed it. It kind of manifests as I'm, you know, I'm kind of double and triple checking to make sure I've done everything. As a student, even on non-critical calls, that's the hardest part: is telling your patient, "Okay, are you ready to go to the hospital?" Yeah. Where do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And then if you can now add a critical, critically ill patient into that scenario and you're no longer a student and you're the only one in, in charge of all that, making those same decisions, it kind of takes you back to that feeling of being a student mm. and yeah, kind of hesitating a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what needs to get done in the order that it needs to get done, but just actually acting on it i would say sometimes that's that's how it gets me that completely makes sense and um i'm thinking about michael loria you sent me to that video of his where he talks about performance under stress i think yeah what why'd you send that to me what spoke to you what did you like about it so okay i guess that's another uh online resource that i'll use and he's got maybe a half dozen podcasts or video video blogs uh, just talking about how to perform at a high level under stress coincidentally he's also a pararescueman so he's got a background in emergency medicine but even if he didn't have any background in medicine he's an advocate for that military mindset where you have to train for these super critical situations that don't come around very often but when they do you should probably know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he's also a believer that with the right training and the right mindset, it doesn't matter if you do it often. When it does happen, you can do it correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of attracted me to the the information that, that he was presenting. Yeah, it really spoke to me too. Yeah. In particular, like I try to help people know how to navigate through their stress responses. He talks about, some people call it square breathing, other people call it tactical breathing, Mm -hmm. where you take a deep breath in, you hold it for a bit, you let it out, um, basically controlling your breathing. I don't know who said it, but it was this quote, when the time comes to perform, you don't rise to the level of your expectation, you fall to the level of your training. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So like as a student, you'll talk to your preceptors. I guess every student is scared of the CPR call. Mm-hmm. Actually being in charge of it. Because being a student and doing a skill in a call, like uh, I was on a CPR call one time and I got to do the IO and push the meds. That's totally different than you're in charge of that, that whole call. You're running everything. You're making all the shots. So being in charge of the CPR call is what I was... Um, I guess that's what I was scared about when in my final semester as a, as a paramedic student. 
and my your preceptors will tell you, oh, it takes several CPRs before you get good at it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that sucks. That mindset of, well, it's going to take several of them before you get good at them. That sucks. I mean, I don't want to wait for yeah. five, ten of those calls before I start getting good at them. I don't want to believe that's the way it has mm-hmm. to be. Yeah. Yeah, that attracted me to Mike Loria and I guess his mindset on high stress performance. Mm-hmm. When I was in the field, I didn't. We didn't run that many calls. I also worked in a rural environment, so we just didn't have a large call volume. So I did a lot of mental rehearsal, walking myself through calls, putting myself in scenarios. Do you do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So like the CPR call. Um, well, let me. So like, let me back up. So when I go to work, I'll check the truck with my partner. Um, after the truck checks out, we'll kind of figure out what we're going to do for food throughout the day, that sort of thing. We'll sit in the ambulance and kind of talk about if we get this call, hmm. if we get a CPR, here's what's going to happen. Having a game plan for your more common critical type calls mm-hmm. is nice. Yeah, It's nice to get on the same page before you start the day. Have you had a student ride with you? Yeah. How's that? We have lots of students. Um, mm. <laughs> what? I may, Gosh. Maybe I was... Ter- I don't know. Maybe I was bad when I was an EMT student. Because I... We get EMT students. We don't... We haven't yet mm. gotten paramedic students. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, it's hard to... Some of them don't want to be involved at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was like that when I was starting out, but I, mm-hmm. I could have sworn that I was interested enough to where I was like, hey, let me let me in there. Let me try. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I guess um, learning how to be a good paramedic, but also learning how to be a good preceptor. Yeah, that's hard. No one teaches you how to do that. Yeah. You just have role models in it. I happen to know you had two pretty good role models about how to precept. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Think of a paramedic, that the paramedic that you've met that you respect the most. What is it about that person that made you respect them? And um, do they have a certain personality type? Do they manage calls a certain way? What unique attributes do they have? I was kind of wanting you to ask this type of question. Um, Someone who is relatable to people most of the calls you get aren't going to be super critical and really high acuity mm-hmm. they're going to be people who they might be in a little bit of pain or they might just be a little bit sick and then they're kind of scared because they're sick i think there's three basic kinds of medics So, like this conversational person that's like your customer service medic you know the person that the little old lady fell and uh, before she leaves, she wants to get her slippers and get her robe and she wants you to put the dog out. And if you can do all those things and then talk with her and chit chat on the way to the hospital, uh, that's a super good quality to have. Um, another type of medic is going to be that one where you've got like a critical life threatening call. The patients are not conscious to talk to you, so it doesn't really matter what your conversational skills are, but you can run that CPR perfectly or 
you know, if you've got a patient that needs to be intubated, you can do that perfectly. Or you got that law enforcement officer that's been gunshot, you're not going to hesitate, you know, exactly what to do and where to go. So that's like the second type of medic that I think of. And then your third type is the one that's a really good outside the box critical thinker. And if you have a patient who has multiple complaints mm -hmm. and it's not, they're not going to fit in one protocol, mm -hmm. that paramedic that can really kind of solve that puzzle is uh, the third type. The best paramedics are the ones that can do all three of those. And I've met a few of those people. You've met people that are the combo of all three. Yeah. It's really fun to watch those people work. Mm -hmm. It's real fun to watch someone really good at their job. Well, you know, the natural next next natural question would be to ask you if you lean towards one of those more than the other. If you're, the preponderance of you is more one than the other two. I think I'm the third, the critical thinker, or I like to think of myself as that. Mm -hmm. I think I have to work on like those high stress situations so that medic that can run that CPR perfectly yeah, I've got some room to work there. And then I think the hardest part about this job for me is being conversational. Yeah. So um, if I have a call where I don't have any awkward pauses with my patient, I consider that a really good call. You know, especially, I mean, if they're not a critical patient, if they fell or if they're complaining of a stomach ache or something, if I can stay talking with them throughout the entire encounter and all the way to the hospital and remember their name mm -hmm. when, I, when I drop them off. And those are areas that I like to improve on or try to improve on. And if I've done that without, like I said, having any awkward pauses, I, I feel better about that. Mm -hmm. I've tried to get comfortable with awkward pauses. <laughs> I think it's okay. We just had one, and I was okay with it. I think sometimes when we're quiet, it lets other people fill in the blanks. You know, mm -hmm. like your patients need to talk, and or not. Maybe they need quiet. I mean, who knows? Maybe they want quiet. So I feel I love those patients yeah. that want quiet mm -hmm. and they don't want to talk. God, I love those patients. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Tell me about your food habits. Like, do you prepare clean, healthy food, or do you take mac and cheese? So it's changed recently. I used to not prepare anything and not cook anything. And then I noticed my EMS pants. I was running out of the stretchy <laughs> on my pants. And mm -hmm. so, and I just wasn't feeling great. You know, when, I mean, there's all kinds of science and studies that, you know, nutrition is... Uh, what you eat is going to determine, you know, the quality of sleep and just the whole quality of your lifestyle. So, so what I've kind of done now is taken the approach that this profession is probably should be a lifestyle change when you come into it. So I like to get a good eight hours of sleep before I go on shift. If you don't exercise, you should find some sort of hobby or maybe try joining a gym or, or do something to just kind of help help you uh, find an outlet for for stress mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I mean our job we we 
do enough lifting and moving to where at some point it's important that you have some strength and some physical fitness. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's important for people who are starting this job to approach it as a, as an entire lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you'll get, you'll be healthier both physically uh, and mentally mm-hmm. if you kind of adopt those principles. So exercise is an outlet for you to manage stress. Do you have any other outlets? When you've had your bad calls, what do you do the next day? Um, well, I guess I guess it depends on. How, I mean, it, just because it was a like a like a bad call, like I didn't like I was bad and didn't do everything. Like I guess it depends. So if you have like a critical call, but you do well then I'm in a great mood the next day. If I have a, a critical call and I don't do so hot, then, um, yeah, I might spend a, the next week kind of going over that and thinking about what I should have done differently mm-hmm. and trying to learn as much as I can from it. Um, that segues me to a question that I always ask pretty much every medic that I talk to, and that is, tell me about your medical errors. What can I learn? What can any listener learn? Yeah, so like we have some of our meds, we're supposed to give them in like a hundred bag of saline, and then I think I did it one time where I gave it in a thousand, and I was like, it's not working. Well, yeah, it's because... Diluted. Yeah. Sort of under, um, underdosed. Yeah, so stuff like that. If I had just taken the time and double-checked my protocols and not been stubborn or, or maybe not even stubborn, but just been more aware mm-hmm. of the need to use a checklist probably wouldn't have have made those mistakes well let's talk about intubation how many attempts have you had four attempts two were successful the other two i had equipment issues we we used the uh the king vision Mm -hmm. and the first time i into or i was attempting intubate ever uh the batteries died and um i never learned how to change them no one ever showed me how to change them. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, yeah, I freaked out with a patient that can't breathe right in front of me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I already given, you know, our, our sedatives and our paralytics. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't know how to change the batteries. So our next treatment in that airway algorithm is to use a rescue airway if you have a failed attempt with uh, the King Vision. So I, I kind of had to, I had to do that. Uh, it's definitely important um learn your equipment well and yeah. if you go into those types of calls expecting the, the more you expect to go wrong the least you're going to freak out when it actually does mm-hmm. so if you expect the batteries in your device to die know how to change it and mm-hmm. be able to do it okay so that was one failed attempt was because of batteries um was the same device and the screen was blurry um and i mean if you're not familiar with the king vision you can just google it and get an idea it's a video scope. the interface is kind of like if you remember um like a super nintendo video game cartridge mm-hmm. or whenever the video game wouldn't turn on or it had a blurry screen you pull it out and you kind of blow the dust off of it yeah well i didn't do that that's what it needed i, I think so i mean i, I don't know you know i tried what I knew how to do at that time, you know, turn it off, take it apart, put it mm-hmm. back together, turn it back on, mm-hmm. check, check the battery power light. And that was fine. 
you know, and by that point I was an expert in changing those batteries. But, uh, this other issue came up that I had never prepared for or trained for. So again, I was freaking out with a patient that couldn't breathe and had to do the same, same thing. Use the, use a rescue airway. What order did your successes and failures come? Failure, failure, then success, success. I thought you were really irritated with that second failure after you had trained extensively to like figure out what was up with the batteries and all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, fortunately that that patient, as far as I know, they they had a a good outcome. But I mean, essentially, it was still my fault because I didn't think of, you know, I didn't think of all the ways to troubleshoot my equipment. Essentially, so mm-hmm. I mean, if you just assume everything's going to work all the time. Mm-hmm. At some point you're going to fail and it's going to be your fault because you didn't think about it. Okay. Yeah. That's taking extreme ownership. You're basically, you're owning it, every bit of it. So the two that were successful, were they just by the book? Yeah. That's nice. It's rare. Nothing looks the way it does in school. So mm-hmm. like the mannequin, when you intubate the mannequin, people don't look like that. Um, is there anything about being a paramedic that was that was hard and you didn't realize it was going to be hard? You were like, hey, wait, nobody told me about this? Nothing obvious jumps out at me. The job itself. Just, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was funny after I cleared. And I was, I was like, well, I'm brand new. Just graduated. And you're going to leave me in charge of whoever, whoever dies next. You're going to leave me in charge of them. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, I I got a little bit of humor out of that. Just knowing that you're no longer a student mm-hmm. and you're in charge and this is the real deal and you're at the other end of that 911 call. Just be very aware of that. Yeah. So you said you're pretty minimalistic about what you carry mm-hmm. on your person to calls. Is there anything that you used to carry that you quit carrying? Yeah. I used to carry one of those little super med pouches or whatever the little zippered pouches on the side and then i was like what do i put in this thing if it's a trauma call we have trauma shears in our trauma bag we have iv supplies in our med box Mm -hmm. i used to carry like my radio pair of shears a flashlight that little pouch and i would shove everything in there and then nine times out of ten i never used any of it if i'm going to a call where i may be far away from the ambulance so i'll take my belt with me or I'll, i'll have it in the truck and if my patient is far from where we're able to park Mm -hmm. I'll wear the belt because I'll have a flashlight and some shears and extra gloves. Yeah. Um, If they're close by, I I won't take it in at all because whatever I need is, it's going to be in the equipment bags that I have already. That's a good system. I've never heard anybody talk about doing it like that. It's usually like yes or no, but you have this nice little middle ground. Well, any last words to paramedic students or brand new medics? So... I I thought that I worked really hard in paramedic school, like I was really involved with it, and I tried to put a lot of myself into the learning. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, I found that when you're on your own in the field, it pays off, and you have that critical patient that might be dying, but somehow all that stuff starts coming back to you. What The medicine that you learn 
in school, the assessment skills that you learn. And I found that I was pleasantly surprised that I knew what to do more often than not. So mm-hmm. yeah, take your your education as seriously as you can because it will matter and it will help you and your patient. Yeah, and I think it, it helps two people. It helps you feel good that you did your best. Yeah. Obviously, it helps the patient, but there's no limit on how much you can know. Like, it's not going to hurt you to know more. You can always scale it back for calls. Yeah. But not knowing stuff or being on calls when you don't know what to do, that'll hurt you. That'll hurt you mentally. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me. I think it's really valuable, everything that you had to say. I knew you'd have cool things to say. And maybe we can do a round two sometime. More questions for you. Yeah. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Please, whenever you do this again, let me know. Cool. Well, I'm thinking about... So, my first idea was just to talk to brand new medics because it's fresh. Like, you remember what you didn't know or you remember what was hard. And then when you get four or five years down the road, you won't remember, like, how hard it was at the beginning. But you'll have four or five years down the road, you're going to have a different perspective and... Um, maybe changed your habits about things. It'd be cool to hear what you have to say in three or four years. That'd be a lot of fun. I look forward to that. Hey guys, one last little bit before you go. During the episode, we make reference to some great resources that you may want to explore more. For example, in this episode, the guest talks about Michael Loria, who makes educational videos for medics. For easy access to links related to the show, go to medicmindset.com. Using the episode number, you'll find loads of information that came up in the talk. Here's a secret. I probably spend twice as much time making the show notes as I do making the actual show. So please check them out, learn what you can, and enjoy.